0: Welcome to Slimehouse, a podcast rated PG for crude humor, outrageous hijinks, and mild language. I'm Bobby. I'm Jasper.
1: I'm Jared. And I'm Nelson.
0: And today, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone by looking at it through the Slimehouse lens, alongside its direct sequel, Chamber of Secrets, both directed by Slimehouse pioneer Chris Columbus.
1: Did you ever make anything happen? Anything you couldn't explain? You're a wizard, Harry.
2: I'm a what? Dear Mr. Potter, we are pleased to inform you that you have been accepted at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. In a few moments, you will pass through these doors and join your classmates.
1: If you don't know what Harry Potter is, you probably are a muggle, but those who need a refresher, the first two films in the franchise follow an orphan boy named Harry Potter who discovers he is in fact a wizard and is accepted at the age of 11 to Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, where he learns all about the magical world and befriends Ron Weasley, his faithful sidekick, and Hermione Granger, the bookworm who joins the trio. And little by little, they unearth the secrets and mysteries of Wizarding World confronted with arch nemesis the evil wizard Lord Voldemort who is hellbent on destroying Harry um, these these first two movies follow the first two years of their time at Hogwarts and these
3: first two films were directed by as Bobby mentioned Chris Columbus who we've identified as a true slimehouse pioneer especially with the first two Home Alone films. We identified early on as kind of, you know, the face that launched a thousand ships. But another movie that we've looked at for last year's 2020 roundup that he did was The Christmas Chronicles 2, which for my money, is a very, very slimy film. I think it was number four or five on our final tally last year. But a couple other films he's done, Mrs. Doubtfire, Adventures in Babysitting, the first Percy Jackson movie, all kind of fall adjacent to the Slimehouse world, among some of his other more adult fare that he's done. But he's also produced quite a bit through his production company, Christmas with the Cranks, which we've looked at. Jingle All the Way, which we will be looking at. The Night at the Museum franchise, Monkey Bone, and interestingly, not Slimehouse at all, but the director Robert Eckers, who is very popular right now. Um, his first two films, The Witch and the Lighthouse, the movie was, these first two were written by Stephen Cloves, who's not really a Slimehouse writer at all. His his, his only other credits are more adult fair, The Fabulous Baker Boys and Wonder Boys, which were kind of Oscar, Oscar favorites. He's written Every film in the series but The Order of the Phoenix. Cinematography in these first two movies is actually two different DPs. Uh, the first one is Australian DP John Seale, an Oscar winner for The English Patient, but also worked a lot with George Miller, including Mad Max Fury Road, Peter Weir on movies like Dead Poet Society, but also had a couple other nominations for movies like Cold Mountain, Rain Man, The Perfect Storm, um, and then The Chamber of Secrets is done by Roger Pratt, who also has a very interesting career. He also shot... The fourth movie in the series, Goblet of Fire, but has done the original Batman movies with Tim Burton and a lot of collaborations with Terry Gilliam, uh, including Brazil, 12 Monkeys, and of course, the great music in this film, for my money, maybe the greatest uh, franchise theme of all time. Uh, The music is done by John Williams, who's done obviously the Star Wars franchise, Indiana Jones franchise. The Home Alone franchise, which we just talked about. And another movie we'll probably be looking at soon, uh, Steven Spielberg's Club.
2: So the cast of the Harry Potter series is a mix of then newcomers and some familiar faces. Main three leads were played by Daniel Radcliffe as Harry Potter, Rupert Grint as Ronald Weasley, and Emma Watson as Hermione Granger. And the supporting roles are a uh, long list of uh, prestige British actors, such as Richard Harris as Dumbledore in his final roles. He played Dumbledore in the first two movies, but was replaced by Michael Gambon after his untimely passing. And Maggie Smith as Professor McGonagall, Alan Rickman as Professor Snape, Robbie Coltrane as Hagrid. And between these two movies, we also get appearances from Kenneth Branagh, John Cleese, John Hurt, Julie Waters, and Toby Jones. So, yeah, these movies, again, as,
3: as Nelson mentioned, if you have not seen or even just heard, uh, where have you been? Probably locked away in the Chamber of Secrets, uh, not. Uh,
1: or the covered under the stairs.
3: <laughs> or the covered in the stairs, away from humanity and popular culture. Uh, so Bobby as our esteemed guest on this show and as as a bibliophile yourself what was your kind of intro to Harry Potter
0: to the books and to the film franchise and and... well I think I like many of you was relatively young when the first book came out Um, I believe it was 1997 that the first book was released Um, so My brother actually was two years older than me, and he and I um, both fell in love uh, after actually hearing about it, I believe, from some friends who had started reading the books. Since he was a bit older, he could uh, read the book on his own. But uh, at my age, actually, my mom started reading the books to me, um, the first book and a half, I think, and then I started taking over. Uh, and it was a way for me to learn actually how to how to read um, because as the books progressed, you know the diction was was relatively um, advanced, um, so it was a great opportunity for me to read back to my mom. Um, and we still have some home videos, I think, actually, of me reading the uh, third and the fourth book to my family at dinner time. Um, so it was definitely part of the family, which was really cool. Uh, for the movies, I remember we used to go to Century Twenty Five, which is in the city of Orange, uh, Classic Theater. You guys could probably tell me, I don't recall going to a midnight showing uh, of the first film or two. I don't think it was quite as big of a deal maybe at the point, and I was still pretty young. Maybe for the third film was, was the first one that I would have done that for. So, um,
1: Well, we were pretty young, so I think they had the midnight showing, but I think it wasn't. the first. I remember a few people saw Goblet of Fire at midnight.
2: I, I think of 2005 as like the year the midnight showing became a huge thing. Like I remember Revenge of the Sith being like the first movie right like people i knew went to go see that at midnight
0: yeah i think from there it was obviously head over heels we we had some friends i think who were in the camp of uh dark magic territory where they weren't allowed to read it and i remember being very baffled because you know so many of the morals uh, of harry potter were obviously things that um, we're good, and were were things that my parents wanted to encourage, and my mom and dad loved uh, the books as well, and loved uh, you know hearing about them from us as we went to eventually the midnight uh, purchasing of books. Huh.
3: I will say, Bobby, you and I in college did go to the midnight uh, showing of the final film, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, Part Two, uh, which I think was one of my first midnight screenings. Um, I was never a midnight screening guy growing up. It was a it was an interesting experience. It just you know it felt like this is the end of you know a cultural era in in a in a big way. Because and on my side, I was never like a massive Harry Potter fan. I read the first three and a half books. I stopped caring halfway through the through Goblet of Fire. Uh, but, <laughs> but I saw all the movies, and I I think for me it was just like I like these movies enough to where like this is enough for me. Like I enjoy this scene, this story. On the screen more than the book but i did actually see the first two on opening weekend um and i re-watched this movie on the exact day 20 years after i saw uh sorcerer's stone after school which was pretty wild um to like think wow 20 years ago i you know after as Friday in fourth grade, we went to Cinema Star and Mission Grove and Riverside and shout out Michael Luther's grandma for buying us all tickets. And
1: I think I'm kind of right in between you guys. I, it's interesting because I think the older sibling thing played a role in my life as well, and that my older sister was a year ahead of me in school and and her first grade class actually read it in school, like the teacher read it out loud and and at that point it was a novelty. It was like, oh, this is this is like a a good book for kids or what have you and i think slowly it suddenly morphed into a true cultural phenomenon and i i think in our lifetimes it is the biggest kind of cultural phenomenon i think of of the early millennium in terms of the books the movies later on the theme park rides and all that stuff but but in that you know late 90s early 2000s i feel like there was just this phenomenon where everyone knew about harry potter everyone um either read the books or saw the movies or you know played on the websites i remember early doing stuff like that and
0: Pottermore. um
1: it was it was one of those things where i don't even consider myself a harry potter fan die hard fan i was I, they, they were sort of pitted against Lord of the Rings sometimes, which is kind of too bad in, in the long run because you know they just sh- they they should exist in the same thing. But I was always more of a Lord of the Rings person. That being said, for someone who was quote not a fan, I still went to every opening night. We had like a group of friends who saw the first one together, and because they were they kind of mimicked the school years the books did, and it, the early movies were pretty quick in succession. Um, there was very much a sense of, like, next year we're doing it again. And so these first two movies, I know I saw them with the exact same group of friends just because of that clockwork, November 2001, November 2002. I remember my sister had a birthday party where she was seeing Harry Potter with all of her friends, and then I was seeing it with all my friends, and we were at the same theater, like two big groups of kids at the same theater, you know, because this was just such a unifying event
2: these first two movies like unlock a different kind of set of memories for me than the later films it's just kind of like revisiting this these first two movies is really interesting because i think there's been like more of an effort in recent years to kind of uh reanalyze this film series is kind of like i've seen it compared to like richard linklater's movies or like the seven up series where it's like this kind of like long-term kind of like cinematic experiment over time like i've heard people say the harry potter series is like the original boyhood basically and it's interesting to like watch these first two movies with that in mind i like that you bring up
3: that point about boyhood or you know the seven up series which i've not seen because i i one of the more sentimental moments i've had in a movie that was a rather unexpected kind of moment of sentimentality was in the first part of the deathly hallows there's a scene where hermione and harry dance to a song by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds called Oh Children. And part of me was like, oh, wow, like interesting, like music choice. Like, I really appreciate this. But then as the scene just like progressed, I like genuinely got misty eyed and like choked up. And I'm again, as I mentioned, I'm not a huge Harry Potter fan, but there was something about it that was like, I've literally grown up with these kids. I've never met them. It's a fictional story but like I've aged out of this story and we're all moving on together in like a weird way and I it, it it sounds so hokey but for some reason that moment just like hit me and like I've grown up with these people I've never met before you know and it it you know and I so I I've never heard that you know take on this series but it truly did kind of feel like that's what the series was doing and I think kind of moving into the slime house side of it too like tonally these movies kind of developed with like the times as well like i think looking at these first two movies they are a little bit they're a lot more lighter they're a lot more kind of fun than the later movies and i think that that emotional maturity and kind of comedic maturity that developed over time also kind of um is an interesting parallel to what we look at on this show and like the development of family films and children's films through this kind of slimehouse genre we've coined.
1: Yeah. I think that when, I think it's really interesting to pick these two movies for this podcast because when we think about Harry Potter now, we have the benefit of hindsight having seen all eight movies released. So Jasper, your memories of Harry Potter are much more associated with the later stuff that you know made the impression of like look how long this has been but at the time this was honestly an experiment in a lot of ways there isn't a precedent for making eight movies very closely aligned with teenage cast who were going to grow up as the movies went on and i think a good comparison is uh one we covered previously lemony snicket where they they weren't able to keep it going and I and part of it was it wasn't as successful as they intended it to, but also part of it was that the kids were hitting puberty and they just couldn't like keep up with the ages slash the books. But the the Harry Potter behemoth was so much bigger. And so these first two movies had a lot of work to do to lay this groundwork for something that now we know is a successful experiment. But at the time, sure, it was it was not known they were even going to make it to the end with the same cast pretty much all the way through, give or take, you know, Dumbledore.
3: (laughs) And contextually, too, I think 2001 is an interesting year because for us, this is the thick of, you know, the slime house genre as we, you know, see its popularity. And family entertainment, films made for kids, they did not look like this at the time. You know, they were not huge big budget blockbusters they were the smaller you know like even the big budget ones like a Stuart little which came out a couple years before it you know that was a big budget kind of tentpole movie that year that it came out in 1989 but it was nowhere near the scope and size of this movie and so in that way on just a on just a production level this kind of changed the game and kind of I think as we've mentioned many times before on the show, kind of began to pull Slimehouse out of favor as kind of like a box office and um, financial force. And it just began this new era of, like, children's and family entertainment had to be franchised. It wasn't like you could just make a Max Keebles or, you know, you couldn't just make a Matilda. It had to be part of this larger franchise, the larger metaverse, to speak, <laughs> current colloquial. Um, but... I, yeah, so I think this is a very, very interesting moment in, in family entertainment specifically. As it got darker, it got bigger. For that reason, I think these are these are very interesting movies to look at.
1: There, we're just going to start, as this episode is getting released, we're going to percolate a whole lot of 20th anniversary business. We're just one of many. But I saw an interesting piece from Chris Columbus where there was frustration over the length of the movie. And if you're, if you're approaching it from the book's perspective, it's a really, they go through the book so fast. That, and that was actually a complaint I've, I've had across the series is that it feels like it's on 1.5 times speed because they're trying to get through so much material. But if you think about it from a Slimehouse lens or a family audience lens, this is a two and a half hour movie, which is way too long for most kids. But, and, and the studio is nervous about that. But Chris Columbus said he knew he was doing it right when they did a test screening for kid audiences and the kids were sprinting to the bathroom and back because they didn't want to miss anything from the movie. And it was proof that they had the attention span for this movie and that it was going to be a hit for families, even though, yes, compared to all the other slimy movies of the era, it's you know an hour longer than most of them.
2: Good afternoon, class. Welcome to your first flying lesson. Stick your right hand over the broom and say up.
3: So Bobby, you are one of our most uh, loyal listeners. I would love to hear you kick it off on kind of your perspective of, based on what you've heard on the show, how you see Harry Potter maybe fitting or not fitting into, into the slime house genre as, you know, we've kind of defined it up to this point.
0: It was really interesting, actually, going into this knowing that you know I was looking at it from a Slimehouse lens because uh, I think my preconception of the movies, having not seen them for about a year, we did a rewatch of all of the films a year ago or so, was that these first two films were very kind of silly and goofy, um, and I think that was my memory of them in comparison to, as we mentioned earlier, the rest of the film series, which rapidly gets uh, darker and darker. Um, but going back to these first two, they're they're not quite as uh, goofy or maybe zany is the word to use as as I had recalled. Um, I mean, right from the get go, you have the opening scene, which is the opening scene in the book as well, of course, which I reread actually for the podcast um, just to be able to to kind of compare and and contrast my thoughts about how the book was adapted. But um, but they start off the same way, right? This nighttime scene of Harry having come from his Parents just being murdered, um, so it, it's a pretty dark opening. And um, you know, from a film perspective, it's the the texture of the film is quite um, subdued. It's it's pretty dark overall. Dumbledore literally is is getting rid of all the lanterns, of course, in the very famous scene. Um, so it was interesting. I I think I expected them to be sort of zanier and goofier. Uh, when in reality, a lot of the the, the material itself was was quite serious. Um, that being said, <laughs> I think uh, there are definite moments um, in the in the first film, and in particular, surprising to me in, in the second film, that really, uh, having watched and, or excuse me, listened to much of Slimehouse and your podcasts, uh, just you know, shouted from the rooftops that it was a slimy moment uh, or or shouted from the uh, phoenix tail feathers, may I say. Um, so, yeah, it was it was quite fun. Thanks. Thanks for for bringing me in, because it made me look at the movies as well as the books in a very different manner than I had before.
3: Let's get things off with the first one, because I think I think we should do our due diligence and kind of examine that one first was um you talk about that opening sequence and kind of the intro of Harry to the world of of his, his own franchise um and, and so this so the Sorcerer's Stone to me I when I, as I was re-watching it to me it feels like such a world building film like there's really not a strong like plot line there's not a strong sense of like character development so to say it's very just like here's the things you're going to see over the next decade in these movies. Here's the people you're going to get to know. Mm -hmm. And it it doesn't leave a lot of room for kind of antics, so to speak. Yeah. Whereas then in the second one, Chamber of Secrets, because they've established this world, it leaves so much more room for silliness and jokes and kind of just general... I mean, middle school antics because they are technically of middle school age in this movie which I think is very slimy because that is to me the kind of target of, of the Slimehouse audience so I thought that was very interesting to, to look through at that, at that perspective and you know and, and see like you can't really Sorcerer's Stone, yes there are slimy moments the troll scene in particular being kind of like, <laughs> I hope we all agree that maybe that might be the, the slimiest bit of that movie but It doesn't really leave any room for itself to be kind of of that, you know, sense of humor. Whereas, you know, Chamber of Secrets, there's plenty of pranks pulled and cakes dropped and things like that.
1: I had a similar observation that I think we take it for granted now these vocabulary words and these magical concepts that are in the cultural consciousness but remember, in this movie, they're having to teach people what the word muggle means, you know, that's where we're at at this point. And the movie is designed so that you don't have to have read the books. It certainly helps to have, but in theory, you don't have to have read them to get what's going on. So they have a lot of legwork to do. And I noticed that the, the plot, so to speak, of the Sorcerer's Stone really doesn't come in until the last hour. And I noticed there was a shift in the movie that it, it feels quite different in the last hour. It feels more like a, quote, plot movie where the kids are kind of trying to solve the riddles and all that or whatever. But the first or the first hour and a half is kind of almost scene for scene, just introducing new concepts to the audience. I always forget how quickly they're out of the Dursleys. The Dursleys to me feels like such a long and, and, and important part of the story, but it's like, Fourteen minutes and they're done, you know, and it, which is wild, you know, in a two and a half hour movie, because the Dursleys are so much fodder for the, you know, the humor, but also the like darkness of the orphanness, you know, in a very like raw doll way, and and in terms of slimy stuff that shows up, I feel like the first one relies much more on the characters themselves to be kind of the Slimehouse element, and I think it's interesting that we're starting the foundation of this with the Slimehouse, you know, lens with Chris Columbus, who's, you know, I think the Warner Brothers would define it as like he's a family-friendly filmmaker and that's why he was so good as the shepherd to, he cast the movies, which was huge, um, especially casting the kids, that was really him. And and remember, he's the one who found Macaulay Culkin. So, you know, they. I think that is what, brought him into this fold as you know the voice to start it off Um, but I think it's so funny like only a movie franchise that started in 2001 would have a slime house you know feel to its first two entries I don't think you know the first of any other series really you know had that the fact that it's a PG franchise, which was kind of un- unprecedented.
3: Yeah, I do think a lot of the humor that comes in, especially the Sorcerer's Stone, is is jokes that are being played on or played by the kids. Speaking of the first fifteen minutes with you know the Dursleys, like when Dudley is you know sneaking off with Harry's birthday cake and <laughs> chomping on it in the back corner, and Hagrid sees him and you know gives him a pigtail
0: as punishment. Which was added, by the way. It's not in the books? It is in the books, but the reason is not because he's eating Harry's cake, actually.
1: But he's still getting a pigtail.
0: He does get a pigtail. But uh, yeah, the, the eating of the cake in response to uh, to getting the pigtail is, is added for the film. Uh, he actually, in the book, he insults Dumbledore, and it's brought Hagrid to his peak point, And so finally, Hagrid curses deadly with the pigtail.
1: Well, but wait... That's kind of the same thing as the movie, because the, Vernon says, I'm not going to have some old crackpot teach him magic tricks. And then... True,
0: but they add, this is like a, a nice moment. I was like, oh, they made it a little slimier than the book even was, because they add the shot of him eating the cake, which was not explicitly stated in the book.
1: I see. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's cool. I, I hadn't thought about that way, and, you know, I, that's... Also that the cake is very, you know, it's, it's one of those examples where like in my head, I imagined Hagrid bringing a birthday cake and I just think a birthday cake, my, like my imagination did not go to like, you know, written in, you know, (laughs) kid font and all that. And and so I, I remember things like that about the book to movie transition being like, like they had funnier ideas than I had. In my head, I would have imagined just a birthday cake and leave it at that. But they went with something, like you said, Bobby, like... Same thing that's on the text, but just do it in a slimier way, the way it's visually shown.
3: Yeah, and and kind of going off that cake scene too, I think food, which we talk about a lot in Slimehouse is, you know, a real center point of a lot of the, the humor and spirit of these movies. I think that is one thing in the Sorcerer's Stone that does bring about a lot of, you know, the sliminess. And that's a lot of, you know, J.K. Rowling's writing But things like birdie bots and the chocolate frogs and, you know, these giant feasts they have in the common room, you know, those all feel very of the slime house spirit and ethos. That said, they don't really do anything with the food. So to me, it's like it introduces a lot of these slime house touches, but they wait kind of until the Chamber of Secrets,
0: as you've mentioned, to really like crack jokes about, you know, cakes. Yeah, you have a lot of the trappings in the first film of this kind of what I was mentioning earlier, zany, uh, childlike humor. Um, but, you know, from a stu- structural standpoint, Harry's an orphan, which we see in a lot of other films, and he's got really terrible parents. Uh, but then when you go to the school, the the professors and the principal, as it were, in this case, of course, Dumbledore, are very respected or feared in the case of Snape. Um, you don't really get the sort of... Uh, you know, feeling that somebody doesn't know what they're doing, uh, you know, or, or is really, really goofy until uh, the introduction of Lockhart in the second film, who really nails that feeling of like just a foolish teacher who who's there and, and just kind of struggling to figure out his way, but totally bluffing that that he knows all of it <laughs> all along, obviously. Yeah, that's a really good... Bobby, I love that
3: point, that the administrators and leaders at the school are very like revered whereas in most of the movies we look at that do have some sort of school setting especially the principals and the administration are the villains or the laughing stock yeah. of the school whereas in Harry Potter it's like Harry wants to be at school he wants to be their friends they're the sages of of the of the narrative and i think that very much deviates from as Jared always brings up the like kind of anti-authoritarianness that really defines Slimehouse.
2: One thing about the first movie, especially more so than the second, is that there's a lot of world building. Yes, but I think like what Chris Columbus really brings to it is that just like Home Alone, this movie is like we always talk about kid wish fulfillment, and this is in some respects like the most wish fulfillment you could that we have covered on this show. Like, if you just look at Harry Potter in the Sorcerer's Stone, or the Philosopher's Stone, as it's known internationally, there's something just undiluted about its approach to that idea and that theme. It's like, you're actually this really important wizard person, and you never knew it. And you have all you have these secret powers, and you have secret access to this cool club. It's just like, there's something about how that movie really approaches the, that idea that we've given lip service to. This movie really goes full throttle with it. I love that you brought that up because it reminds me of how there's a kind of running gag among
1: our generation where it's like, my still waiting for my letter on my 11th birthday, you know, where is it? Kind of. And it's true that there is this wonder. I remember this adult talking about the Harry Potter series. I don't remember who it was, but she said, oh, and of course, my favorite is the first one because it's so there's so much wonder in it and it's like welcome to this world and as a you know 15 year old or whatever i heard that i was like that's so dumb the first one's the least interesting you know it gets more interesting as it goes right but if you think about it from what you're describing jared the first one is the one that has that bug-eyed wonder of you know i go from being an orphan and living with horrible people into you know I get to go to the coolest school in the world you know and it's a different type of view towards school in general. They actually when they published the books they didn't think it was going to do well in the U.S. because they thought the boarding school concept would be too obtuse for Americans, but they were proven wrong. Of course, it added to the yeah, I the, think
2: yeah the exoticness right?
0: the, yeah the fantasiness, you know for all of us who are who are living in the United States and for the most part. I know Nelson maybe accepted, hadn't experienced a community like that, a space where you were, you know, with her house and with with her friends all the time, going from class to class. I remember as a kid being really fascinated by that. And even still, um, you know, on my most recent reread of the entire series, it was actually with my wife Rachel. We actually listened to the audiobooks starting in the second or third book. And to your point earlier, Nelson about, you know, the, the films not quite hitting the the books and, and their sort of the breadth of the books and, and the characterization and having to be short even though they were still long films. The audiobooks are basically what you want from from a movie adaptation, if you want the exact same experience, because it was just a way to explore this sort of, yeah, as I said, exotic to in particular to an American, let alone um, to anybody, obviously, from the magic, magical standpoint. So um, highly recommend them. And it was a great way, my wife Rachel had never read the books before. Um, so it was a great way to first explore them. We, we would listen to one and then we would watch the movie and, and listen to one and watch the movie, so. It's very
2: interesting. Mm,
3: That's super cool. The school note is very
0: interesting too because it gets me
3: thinking about kind of what were Harry Potter's predecessors in books like the Chronicles of Narnia or even earlier, you know, Alice in Wonderland where there are these, you know, young kids or young adults kind of entering these fantasy worlds but through a very kind of mystical and magical way that is very kind of almost abstract and dreamlike where harry potter made it feel very tangible like there's a school for wizards like that is a something that a kid who's just going to school can relate to Mm -hmm. and that does feel going back to jared's point about like the ultimate wish fulfillment oh i would love to not be at my current school and just go to a cool school where i could be a wizard
1: and take classes like Defense against the dark, yes, exactly. her, <laughs> yeah, yeah. herbology, and you know, um, yeah, there's a moment in the first one that I sort of latched onto on this rewatch where that felt to me like a, a slimehouse moment, kind of an anomaly to the series, but in the moment reminded me of some slimehouse things. And it's right when the children arrive off the train, first of all, Harry Potter is was all born on a train. J.K. Rowling was on a train when she had the idea. It all came at once. Um, so they get off the train, and they're going up the stairway, and Professor McGonagall, who's maybe the closest to, like, the stern authority figure. I mean, yes, Snape is kind of the the villain at times, but I think McGonagall feels like the one who's going to, like, you know, wrap your knuckles a little bit. Um, and she's looking down at them, and then suddenly uh, Trevor the Frog escapes and neville longbottom is a good name to bring up at this time is like trevor and he runs out to the front and kind of like on his knees and then looks up and there's mcgonagall in the kind of kid's eye view not distorted lens that would be i'm sure that was vetoed for this the gravitas of the series but it still has that angle perspective of like mcgonagall being like you know, get your shit together, Neville, you know, and what's wrong? And, you know, he's a little like intimidated because it's this new school and they're, you know, they're frosh at this school. And, um, and that to me felt like a moment that was like, yeah, that's kind of the closest it comes to that, that authority, that intimidating authority and being, you know, essentially freshman attitude, even though obviously they're not you know what I mean? First years and all that. And, um, Moments of that. I do think there is, aside from the teachers who, you know, for the most part are
3: pretty respected, I do think there's a fun kind of fear of parents in these movies, though, too. I mean, with Harry, it's his aunt and uncle. Ron, I think, loves his parents. You know, gets along with his parents, especially his father. But there's still a sense of, like, they are my parents. Especially, you know, in the Chamber of Secrets during the kind of famous howler sequence. A literal angry letter that yells at him in his mom's voice.
1: Look, everyone. Weasley's got himself a howler. (laughs) Go on, Ron. I ignored one from my gran once. It was
0: horrible. Ronald Weasley!
2: How dare you steal that car! I am absolutely disgusting! entirely your fault! If you put another two out of line, we'll bring you straight home!
3: Oh, and Ginny, dear, congratulations on making Gryffindor.
1: Your father and I are so proud.
2: One of the most interesting things to think about when watching these movies in the slimehouse lens is, like, what if this was from the point of view of another person in the classroom? Like, if you had this movie from Neville Longbottom's point of view like he just very much seems like a character you went to school with as an American he has that there's something like almost American about him to me you know we talk about slimehouse like this is this very like Americana kind of product and like this movie doesn't really feel like Gunshouse to me which is like a terminology we use for like British feeling slimehouse movies like let me snick it and things like that but I'm saying two things here one is that like you would have like a more slimehouse house movie if it was from a point of view of like not an angsty orphan character but also like i know you guys talked a little bit about the suburbs and the the dursleys and like that's we jasper has a term for what that would be if this were an american film which is mutant americana but you're getting a view of like, like surrey or like a london suburb and is that like mutant britannica
3: they do remind me though if you look at a movie matilda we we recently re-looked at like the dursleys remind me so much of you know devito and ray perlman's yeah. parents you know in that analogy. movie where you know they're these it's this caricature image of the nuclear family being dysfunctional and kind of silly you know whereas the the functional world is outside of the house is outside of the family you know that is a very slimy sensibility and
0: they ham it up too i mean bravo to the actor and actress who play the 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 dursleys because i i think it was already they're already slimy characters having just read the book i mean they're ridiculous in the book but then to have that representation on screen, they did such an incredible job and really brought them to life, as, as most of the actors and actresses did, of course. Actually, yeah, I'll concede that, yeah, you're right. They, they're, there's a mutinous to them, I
1: will admit that. I think what's interesting, and what actually kind of, admittedly, as like a self-serious kid kind of bothered me about the movies, was that I feel like the characters are all either super serious or super silly, you know? Like, think about... The moment where Dumbledore accidentally eats an earwax jelly bean it's very subdued it's just like oh i guess that's an earwax you know whereas if that was a slime house headmaster he would have like fallen on the floor or been like yeah you know or some kind of big reaction whereas characters like Hagrid the Dursleys and Ron Weasley and Neville Longbottom i feel like only exist as slime type characters with their dialogue and all that The other one is Seamus, who always blows himself up, you know, at times like that is a character that's purely for comic relief. Which, as a kid, always kind of annoyed me that like they just were serious characters and then just totally silly characters, and rather than characters who kind of like. N- nuanced <laughs> a and bit.
0: they added to that actually nelson Sheamus in the books does not blow himself up at any point uh from from my recent reading um so that explosion scene is definitely added which i definitely feel was a was a nice touch of slime
3: yeah definitely has that kind of live action cartoonishness to it
0: 100 jasper you were just talking earlier and, and jared as as well a little bit about something you guys talk a lot about on the podcast which is this um, framing a story from a child's perspective versus framing it from maybe just a, a family or an every-person movie. And I think the first film, as well as the second film, but especially the first film for me, uh, felt a little less slimy because of the way it's framed, especially having come from reading the book right before then, where it's told mostly from Harry's perspective, the dialogue and the way he's interpreting things is is processed through his brain, and you get the, you know, sort of third-person omniscient narrator where they know everything that's going on in people's minds, and then you turn to the movie where Chris Columbus and Stephen Clovis and, and everybody who was working on the film shoot it in a way that to, to both Rachel and I, when we were watching these films, felt less child view focused and more sort of family focused where the adults in the scenes that they're in just they feel like adults um and what was really interesting to us is that from the first film to the second film you start to get that maturation that sort of boyhood theme we were talking about earlier which is that they start to get to know the adults just a little bit more each movie as it progresses and there's this feeling of um them discovering the world. So even though the films aren't shot, you know, from the child's perspective and, and kind of goofy or zany, and they're they're quite serious at times, it is being told in a way that really centers the the, the children and their experience of, of growing up and, and trying to discover things. So I thought it was an interesting balance. You know, it's it's hard to say on the slime Slimo scale or slime meter um, where those land, but I do think it it was kind of different from some of the more obviously slimy movies that you guys have covered, um, and maybe that's because it's a fantasy. You know, this is this is very much in the fantasy world. Um, but anyway, just food for thought. Throw
2: in the dungeon, Throw in the dungeon. Thought you ought to know. Yes, that's interesting because I feel like the way that Snape is portrayed in these early movies, it really hammers home the idea that this is like the child's point of view because he's this like very mysterious kind of brooding, dark looking dude who like in the first movie they think he's sabotaging uh, Harry at the Quidditch game. Mm -hmm. And I felt like the way that that is uh, resolved, well, I mean, you find out what actually happened later in the movie, but... Like the way that that's that that action is resolved with Snape catching on fire, but like something that, you know, maybe not slime, not Slimehouse, but like very Chris Columbusy, because I think of Chris Columbus as not really, he's the most important director to Slimehouse without like, I think of his I think he makes movies that are important to Slimehouse without actually being Slimehouse, and I feel like this movie is in that kind of view, but I feel like I feel like that character in particular and how you get to know more of him as a series progresses. That is the one relationship that like really demonstrates how you're seeing like a kid's point of view where they're judging this adult by his cover when there's more layers there. And even with like Dumbledore, like, you know, they automatically take a liking to him, but like even he has more layers than he's letting on. And like, he's, you know, Um, it's just like how those relationships mature you know it's interesting you said that you
1: think Columbus is maybe the most important slimehouse house director but isn't a slimehouse house director in some ways and I really like that I'm sort of I've been sort of uh gestating that as as I've been listening to you because I think that lesser directors lean more into slimehouse house because it's kind of safe you know it's like an easy gag to have a fart or a mess or something like that yeah whereas Columbus if you look at I'm thinking about Home Alone, Mrs. Doubtfire, and this series. And all of those movies are important to Slimehouse as a genre, but they are not the movies on the cover of the Slimehouse book, which will be written one day. Um, Yes. They're not the ones that are carrying it, but I think that they're the ones that inspired a type of spirit that other directors then latched onto and leaned into the scatological side of it. Columbus is not a, he's, he's higher brow than that in a funny way, you know, and, and he takes kids seriously. I think that's one of his mm-hmm. um, rede- most well-known qualities is, you know, I also just realized he also discovered Mara Wilson, you know, so you, wow. uh, you, you name it, he discovered a child actor in that 10 year span, 10 plus year span. And so I think that is something that's interesting to think about. This as House, is slimehouse is, I don't think this is a high scoring Slimehouse movie for me, but I think that it's sort of slime adjacent in a way that speaks to how omnipresent Slimehouse was at the time, but also how Columbus knew how to include things like the cape catches on fire, that another director would have hammed that up and made that silly and slimy. But for him, it's still a Slimehouse set piece, but it's not done in a hammy way.
3: Rewatching the first one especially, I had a thought about specifically the music in this movie mm-hmm. and how much music over the course of the show over the last year I've realized how much music sets the tone for Slimehouse. John Williams score in this is amazing. It's as I mentioned, one of my favorite scores of all time. Hedwig's theme, which is the kind of you know, theme that everyone knows and can whistle like I think it might be the best movie theme ever, but there's something so regal and mysterious and kind of like grounded about it. Whereas a scene like the cake scene where, where Dobby the house self dumps a cake on, um, in, on a dinner party at the Dursley's in the chamber of secrets or, you know, the car scene where Harry and Ron, you know, hijack his mom's car and drive it to fly it to Hogwarts. Sorry. Um, in a, in a basic slimehouse movie, those scenes would be set to some like jumpy, maybe ska soundtrack to like really up the ante and be like, <laughs> get it? This is supposed to be funny and cool, you know? Whereas in these movies, it's never it's never pumped up that way. It's just like we don't need to over uh, prove to you that this is funny or this is a silly moment. It's just like you understand that oh yeah a cake being dropped on somebody is funny like that's not the point of this scene the music is 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 really telling you this it's not trying to push a feeling on you it's just it's there and i think you know williams is is a master of his of his craft but i think in a lot of symphonic movies the music is really used to like hammer over the head what you're supposed to feel
1: and which is why i think as a young movie watcher the goofiness of it almost took me out of it i remember like going to see chamber of secrets and ron weasley goes why did it have to be follow the spiders why couldn't it be follow the butterflies and, like everyone <laughs> in the theater lost their minds and i just didn't think it was that funny because it was like this like that's so Dumb. Like the kid wouldn't say that. You know what I mean? He wouldn't say, follow the butterflies. You know what I mean? Like it just, it didn't, it rung to me as kind of like phony humor. And that is the slimiest stuff. And to me, the slimiest stuff is the stuff that I thought felt out of place in Harry Potter land. Whereas, like, if that had been said in Mac, if Robe had said that in Max Keeble, I think that would actually be pretty funny. You know, but I think tone, I think to your point, Jasper, like the tone makes the slimehouse feel like almost out of place at times in in these movies because of the other thematics they're throwing at us.
3: Watching these movies made me really think about kind of the other dominant franchise of, of our current moment, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I know, Bobby, you've been rewatching right now. And kind of the, like, quippiness that you're talking about, Nelson, where it's like, oh, we got to throw some jokes in here because we don't want to take ourselves too seriously feels very fresh in a weird way. I don't personally like it, but it felt like kind of a new thing for a blockbuster to do that kind of stuff. And I think most blockbusters after this, especially kind of the J.J. Abrams, Joss Whedon world of, of writing the Star Trek movies, the Marvel movies, things like that, takes a lot from this like, oh, you have to have jokes in the movie to make it work. Because that's what people want to, you know, want to hear. They have to have something to remember.
2: Unless you're Zack Snyder, you don't need to tell jokes. <laughs> um, sorry. Some of the way that Sorcerer's Stone is shot to me, we, we just came off our spooky slime segment not that long ago, and this almost feels like spooky slime. Like this and Chamber of Secrets both actually, like more so than I thought it was going to upon revisiting. Like the first scene, and like you have this shot of Professor McGonagall morphing out of being a cat and like you see the shadow of that happening. And that just feels like something that would be in monster squad or something like, yeah, or hocus pocus. Yeah, for sure. Hocus pocus is better. Yeah.
1: You know what, Jared, I don't necessarily equate these two movies to spooky slime, but I do equate Harry Potter and the prisoner of Azkaban to spooky slime. To me, that movie, if you remember the tagline of it is something wicked this way comes They have a choral scene where they sing a redux of double-double toil and trouble. And it's very much like gothic almost in a way that these movies I would not, even though the the locations are kind of classic British, I wouldn't call this like gothic, whereas Alfonso Cuaron's infusion made it.
3: I'll actually, I'll go to bad for Jared's point though. I I had the same thought specifically about Chamber of Secrets. To me, there was something so kind of kooky about the way it was shot and i think a lot of that goes back to um roger pratt the dp you know if you look at a lot of his work with terry gilliam a lot of it looks kind of kooky and kind of otherworldly but that said i also had the thought which i'd never realized before that the harry potter movies and books kind of almost feel like mystery novels in a weird way Mm -hmm. like these kids are solving this mystery of like what is Voldemort? What is this legend? Like, we are, we don't know about, we don't, as a, as a viewer or a reader, we don't know more about the legend than they do. Like, we are unraveling this mystery as they are. And so in a weird way, like, Chamber of Secrets almost had like a scooby Dooish ish kind of theme. <laughs> yeah, it. yeah. And to me, I'd like to bring that up, Jared, because like, I 100% agree with you that these definitely, I would program specifically chamber of secrets on a spooky slime house slate any day
0: yeah i'll echo that from a technical perspective too and of course i'm probably the least qualified to speak on technical matters here but um the the camera work In both the first, but in particular in the second film, I noted actually multiple times, and Jasper, to your point, wacky angles, really weirdly shot scenes to call out a couple. When Harry's in the shack at the very beginning, when Hagrid comes in, there's some really interesting sort of elevation stuff going on where it's shooting from the floor upward at Hagrid to give you the sense of his giant which you don't discover until later, uh, Heritage. And then in the second film, my, one of my favorite goofy intros, Malfoy, Lucius Malfoy, the father of Draco is introduced. There's a shot of them in this bookstore at the Lockhart thing, and it's looking up and Draco Malfoy is looking literally down on them with his father, he's like up on this you know, second story. And it's just such a weird like angled shot. And I feel what you were saying earlier, Jared, where it gives it kind of this sense of, you know, it's like spooky. It's not meant to be really seriously scary. Um, but it it does sort of lend to that. And then just one other point, Jasper. You mentioned the idea of these feeling like mysteries. I think Rowling has come out multiple times stating that she was very inspired by mystery novels, classic mystery novels, as well as a, a classic kind of buildings roman, right? The the coming of age stories of British coming of age stories in particular where it was common to write about children going to boarding schools like these um and so it kind of leans into the slime house feeling right the the idea of discovering something along with the characters but at times the mystery framing for me actually pulled me out of that feeling of zaniness because you're so invested in like what the next discovery might be that it didn't quite land like some of the other films that you guys have covered before did for me when i I watched them and thought, yeah, that's that's slime to the
2: T. Like, I think there's elements of spooky slime in both of these movies. And one way in which I think *Sorcerer's Stone* actually might be a little have the leg up is the color palette mm. and like the the way that you're introduced to some of like the the Hagrid scene Bobby's talking about uh, earlier on in *Sorcerer's Stone*. It's very dark and really shot, and he's kicking a door down, and it looks like it could be even a slasher movie, even and. <laughs> it's got this kind of like intrigue to it that Chamber of Secrets doesn't have. Cause you already kind of have an understanding of the world of, that you're in. I feel like the slime content of both movies is about even, I wouldn't like give one a different score than the other. We were, we were talking a little
1: before we recorded just about how we all kind of know these movies inside and out. And you know, in a way that like felt like I was pretty well prepared for what I was re watching. But one thing that came at me from Left field that I did not expect to read as Slimehouse, but did read a Slimehouse to me. It's the way Quidditch is depicted in these <laughs> movies as an extreme sport, yeah. right? <laughs> and like you watch the first movies Quidditch match, and the moves they have remind me of like snowboard videos and like Tony Hawk stuff, and I think that's something that the book obviously couldn't do. Like the, the book just talks about games in very obtuse ways. I think that's one of the, you know, the areas that was always the most confusing, whereas the movie does a really good job of a, introducing the rules of Quidditch. I, I always liked that scene and the way they do that. But then the game itself, the Slytherin beater guy with his buck teeth and like the way that <laughs> they're scoring points. There's one point where they, the gal, flips her broom to the side and whacks the ball with the back of her broom which yes. feels like a sick move like bonus points in tony hawk pro Stadium, <laughs> you know like that to me i was like wow it's amazing how extreme sports that you would never like put that in a like in a marvel movie because to that analogy you would never have like a sporting game i mean maybe the closest thing to that is like thor ragnarok they like they fight but it's still a fight you know it's not like we're gonna have a quidditch match to the death you know and that feels so of the era in a way that i was shocked almost that like how much that felt that screamed 2001
3: and also quidditch too on that end is is like the rules are a little blurry and I'm sorry if this is just me not being a huge Harry Potter fan, but it's always been a little confusing to me and a little bit like just like subjective on the point side in a weird way. <laughs> and it's not, it's never been really about like the game. It just kind of always feels like how cool it looks like what you're saying. <laughs> in, Cause in like a lot of sports movies, it's like, you're anticipating the like, the, like everyone knows the rules of basketball or baseball. Like if you have a baseball or basketball scene in a movie, it's like, who's going to win? Whereas, like in Quidditch, it's just more like, how cool can we make this look? Weird example, but another Warner Brothers movie that we've looked at this year, Space Jam: A New Legacy. Uh, the game of basketball they play in that is just so loony. No pun intended. Uh, <laughs> like, it's just like the all it is is just like stupid moves. And, like, random kind of points that you don't understand. (laughs) But it looks cool. And, like, kids are just like, oh, sick. Look at LeBron doing that backwards dunk. And, like, look at Anthony Davis creating a weird stool in the middle of thin air. Because it's a video game. You know, like. And that, to me, is how Quidditch feels in all the Harry Potter movies. It's like, nobody cares about how it's scored. Nobody cares about the rules. It's just, like, fun to watch these people fly around on broomsticks. Very... Rudimentary CGI.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh man, yeah. I do have to say though, Jasper. Speaking of the CGI, a lot of the CGI holds up very well. I was yes. I was quite yeah. impressed. I know it's yeah. obviously the like top of the top, you know, in in the industry that was doing this. Um, but I think Chris Columbus's uh, uh, emphasis on practical effects mixed with uh, not only um, CGI but also other effects that they were working on uh, was just. Did a lot to to make the films feel a little more timeless, um, and I'm sure he did that partially for the child actors, but also partially that because that's what he preferred. Um, but I, just so many moments, you know, I, Jasper made fun of me in my letterbox review for noting the bathroom set design, but. It really pulls you into the film. This idea that the the you know sinks literally move open when they're coming to the end of the Chamber of Secrets and they're discovering the chamber for the first time. And on the slimo scale, as I mentioned earlier, that to me feels pretty slimy to have lots of practical effects. They built the entire chamber. It was the biggest set they had for the oh, films. Yeah. And it looked incredible. It just allowed them to do really cool stuff um, throughout both, both the first two films, which I think kind of, waned a little bit as the movies went on
2: the cha- set piece at the end of chamber reminds me so much of the indiana jones disneyland ride mm-hmm. um different color palette for sure but like <laughs> the, the right. sculptures <laughs> look very similar
1: um <laughs> yeah even I, even the the finale to sorcerer's stone where they're kind of like entering the different rooms to keep going deeper into the oh yeah, thing, yeah. it feels that to me feels very theme park i love the um the look of the chess board and i love that big chess board it's so cool the game itself is not very uh chess interesting but the uh the okay, grandmaster <laughs> the, <laughs> the look the look of it and the uh, is really cool and the,
2: um, yeah. that is an interesting point to bring up because bobby's talking about the practical effects with chess in the first movie you get like you get the you're introduced to chess as like the cgi board or like knights nice, what is it called wizard's chess Wizard's Chess. You see it first on like a regular chess-sized chessboard, and it's like CGI pieces. Then you have the finale you're talking about, where it's actually giant gargantuan practical effects. And like one thing I want to talk about with these two movies is that the CGI is very early 2000s, especially in the original when you're the scenes of Quidditch and Neville Longbottom accidentally flying. That CGI is just has that very blurry PS2 looking (laughs) aesthetic going for it. (laughs) And that almost registers slimy to me.
3: Yeah, there's a there's a weird, like, rubbery feeling to oh, yeah, yeah Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, literally, Harry's arm turns to rubber in Chamber of Secrets, which I think is a very fun little sequence. But, yeah, in this movie, I, I when the CGI came on, and again, as Bobby said, a lot of the CGI does hold up very well. But the CGI that doesn't necessarily hold up very well is the kind of CGI I think of when I think of Slimehouse, where it's like, A little too smooth a little too rubbery a little too kind of blurry and all over the place thinking back this was one of the first movies i think i like noticed like that kind of style of cgi especially in the scene where neville longbottom (laughs) the room takes him up into the sky too early but even like the troll in the in the sorcerer's stone for the time excellent looking cgi for sure and still holds up better than most cgi that comes out today but there is a sleekness to it. Like it's not like, it's just one render away from
2: being done. <laughs> it feels very yep.
1: slimy in a weird Cause way. Cause they were, they, yeah. they, have, they took so much computer power to do it. I, I'm not an expert by any means, but I know that like, the, the problem with CGI is that as the computers get more powerful, they lean more into it. And so that's why CGI never has really gotten better with the exception of like dune which we've talked about offline but in general cgi this was an era that was really good for it because they it was really expensive to do and it was also really difficult to do so they really only did it when they had to and whenever they could they did practicals and the practicals will always age better because it's just doing it in camera like all the those effects and and that's the, the the magic elements of it that's movie magic in a way is like let's make it you know something pop or something fly or whatever and you know it's so seems cliche but you know i love a good nelson
3: it's movie magic (laughs) but on the note cgi there is some very slimy cgi not just in the look but what they're doing with the cgi one particular scene in the chamber of secrets where harry and ron have stolen the car because they missed the hogwarts express and they're following the train tracks and then they Quickly realize that Hogwarts Express is about to run them over. There's a very distinct shot of Hed- Hedwig, whose oh, yes. owl's eyes like bugging out, like, <laughs> CGI's style that we talk about a lot with like dog reaction shots like that. And I was like, "Ooh, <laughs> it's like that is a Slimehouse shot if ever I've seen one." And then there's a lot of stuff with like the Polyjuice Potion to me when. They kind of transform into Crab and Goyle that's very like slimy to me and like like a body horror but like a kid's kind of way. And then of course you have like the Cornish Pixies in the Chamber of Secrets. These little blue kind of smurf looking guys flying around making weird yeehaw sounds. Like there's, there's moments like that that just like, especially in the creature effects that they use CGI for that yeah.
0: feel very just of the time, frankly but very slimy. For those who haven't seen the films too, just to really nail jasper's point home about how slimy some of these creatures are The cornish pixies don't only yeehaw they yeehaw while riding a skeleton of a dinosaur (laughs) down from the ceiling which is great a Um, (laughs) now this actually is is what i was going to bring up a bit earlier jared mentioned that he feels like he would score the movies similarly on the slime scale which i'm very intrigued by because talking about all of these pieces from the second film, the second film to me screamed Slimehouse far more than than the first film did. Because the first film has all of these parts, we talked about this earlier that are that are, you know, sort of slime inspired, but they don't really lead to a whole. And while the second film isn't, you know, you here's the grade A slimehouse film you should go watch it does have quite a few scenes uh, that to me really um, nailed it home. Jasper mentioned that the Polyjuice Potion, which in general feels very slimy. It's goopy and it looks disgusting and they literally add hair to it. But then of course you've got Cat Hermione who comes out from (laughs) the Polyjuice Potion scene, uh, which just, you know, has this kind of, goofy cgi uh mixed over uh emma watson's uh face but there's so many scenes really to discuss in the chamber of secrets uh and i could go on and on but i I do uh if it's not obvious i do lean much harder into the slime category for for the second film My, my favorite scene
3: in the chamber of secrets that might be the slimiest scene is is it's just announced that Draco Malfoy is the new seeker of the Slytherin Quidditch team and um, there's a little bit of a a tiff between the Gryffindors and the Slytherins in the in the practice field. So Ron Weasley decides to cast a spell on Draco Malfoy that is just eat slugs, but his wand as they've established in the movie is broken, so he accidentally casts the spell on himself. So for the next 15 minutes he's just throwing up slugs. <laughs> Like and to me that is just very like classic gross out, classic bodily humor, like very, you know, gastronomical humor that we see all the time. And another one, this is a very minor detail that I laughed out loud at. Again, this this, this car hijacking bit, once Ron and Harry finally get to Hogwarts, the car gets destroyed by this wumpy willow that they that they land the car in, but then in retribution. This magical car spits out all their luggage. And there's a tiny little blinkiny miss it sound, or I guess not blinkin'y miss it, but cover your ears and miss the sound effect where the car just farts and all the <laughs> luggage flies out. It's like, it's like a little toot, but it's like one of those things that you're like, this is so of its era. And <laughs> it's like, out the trunk thing. too. <laughs> yeah. Out the trunk, yes. And it's just still over there that it's was like, all right,
2: slimehouse city right there. I, I wanted to give a shout to some of Hagrid's stuff in this that felt slimy to me. And mainly his dog Fang, just that mm. wrinkly big mastiff looking boy. He's that's a slimy dog. And then also his insult or not an insult, but his catchphrase cod <laughs> It's this very like kind of out there kind of Gungy term because uh, I'm guessing in UK you get a higher whatever the MTAA rating system is in the UK. If you say bollocks, it's probably a sort of a genuine curse word. So you gotta say Codswall. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's bullshit in in UK speak. But yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. I like the Cotswold and Jared, because there are a lot of great insults in both of these movies and throughout the entire franchise. A good insult is automatically gets you. A- a couple slime house points on the slime scale. Many silly insults to be had in this entire franchise.
0: We were chatting a little bit uh, about a previous episode that you guys just recently did. Cabin Boy was the uh, title of the film, I believe. And who would have guessed <laughs> that you would have seen a new trope beginning, which is floating cupcakes, I believe. Uh, hey! <laughs> in both of these films, which uh, very slimy scene where uh, they're trying to get Crab and Goyle, of course, to, eat these uh you know sleep laden cupcakes uh they've they've been poisoned or whatever and and they're just they just float in front of these characters faces and you've got multiple floating pastries maybe that's maybe that's the trope
1: yes and the cake scene of course which speaks for itself so love the food i love the insults and one other thing that to me just feels so of the era that's could not avoid mentioning is harry does not just fly on any old broomstick he flies on a nimbus 2000, 2000. Oh, and yeah. then draco gets nimbus 2001 he won up secret.
0: Some... Oh, oh yeah
1: yeah of course and so it's this i mean i one of my favorite things to come out of the slime podcast is that we refer to the jim carrey grinch as grinch two thousand, <laughs> <laughs> and that will never get old for me but like you know it was an era where you'd have a movie called pokemon the movie 2000 and like yep. <laughs> there was so much emphasis on that it was just such a uh, marketing and holy moly the the future is here you know and something about that and just the fact that that was so prominently featured in here it is just icing on the cake <laughs> it's so true now does that cake get
3: transported by a house elf on top of your uncle and aunt's house guests
0: heads
2: Mm, i think so uh. <laughs> it's all it's all troll
0: <laughs> can we also uh call out the ending scenes of both of these films have clapping outros uh not quite the last scene but nearly the last scene first film of course probably one of the slimiest moments in the movie where the house cup announcements. Yes, are I'm so <laughs> <fact> <laughs> <that>. <laughs> And you've got the you've got the very CGI banners of the house Slytherin, the bad guys, as it were, in the film. And then, of course, winning points. It, this is a game where the points don't matter really. They just <laughs> are made up at at random whims. Uh, and of course, Harry and his friends save the day. And the house cup really is the the final scene and then in the second film yet again a clapping scene for hagrid returning it was not a freeze frame finish like i recall that's in a later harry potter film that's uh, the third one but, yes all of I these films that. they do have some really delightful slime finishes
2: I, I will i want to say something about the ending to sorcerer's stone which is like Throughout the movie, you're getting this like competition between Gryffindor and Slytherin about like who can score the most points for their classroom. And when we were talking about our personal histories with Harry Potter, I mentioned I went to a certain school when the first two movies came out. And in the classroom there, they would have each row of tables in the classroom. and The people sitting in those rows were like one team and they were competing for who would get the most points for best behavior by like being earliest or whatever. But I was just reminded of that so much by the first film. And like, I don't know if you guys ever had that where it was like, Oh yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. I in- think in- within classroom competitions by arbitrary I think- seat assignments. I think that this inspired a few
1: different schools to do some kind of point system. Um, I-, I don't remember it
2: participating in any myself, but I do remember other people um, describing it and, there was one team that was so try hard about it and they they, like they had to be broken up because they were a dynasty or monopoly. Sounds like a bunch of Gryffindors to me. (laughs) I I actually have a question this happens to be on but sorry Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff like what are they about like oh well you gotta read the I mean actually Ravenclaw
3: are the bookworms.
1: Yeah they're very intelligent and cunning and then Hufflepuff are very kind I mean, Bobby's the pro here, uh, but, you know, Hufflepuff
3: is the... Let's just say this. On this call, I think we have each house. You do? I'll start with myself. I actually always likened myself to a, a Ravenclaw, not because I think I'm smarter than anyone else, but I just always kind of saw myself as a little more reserved, a little bit more interested in, you know consuming culture than participating in it a little bit, if that makes sense. But I have recently found out via multiple random quizzes that I guess I'm a Hufflepuff? Which everyone kind of thinks is like the dopey one, but I guess I'm more gentle and kind and a little bit more of a open to other kind of everyone kind of person. That said, I think, on this call, I think Bobby would be the Ravenclaw. I think his... He's a very studious, very hardworking, well-read fellow. I would say, Jared, you are the bravest of the bunch. You're just a jolly soul. I would say you are you are a Gryffindor. And then sneaky P over here, Nelson Tracy would definitely be slithering of the bunch. (laughs) Slithering around, always trying to get his way, trying to get his point across. Like he's he's right.
1: Wow. (laughs) Shots fired. Um, That's funny. (laughs) I'll take it. I don't think it is. That was one thing that always annoyed me as a kid too, is that I was just like, it was like all the good guys are in Gryffindor, all the bad guys are in Slytherin and there's no nuance. But later as things got older and as Harry Potter became much more cultural, whatever, I think there became an interest in the sorting hat and them being four different things and Slytherin, not just being pure evil, but also, whatever finally i have hbo max has a feature right now where they Ooh. sort movies into categories and they say for the gryffindors and it's like, <laughs> movies with like dwayne the rock johnson and like kind of oh and like superman and you know things like that and then it's like for the slytherins and it's like the suicide squad and oh like man that and then for hufflepuffs it's like Rom coms, something like oh, that, Lord. you know. Ravenclaw, you'll you'll have to look Dune at it. Dune is under the Ravenclaw. Yeah, Dune, so, Dune would be so, a Ravenclaw so. for sure. Uh, but they're very funny, and someone put some good time into that. Um,
3: I would say Slimehouse movies are are definitely Hufflepuff movies. Wouldn't you guys say so?
1: Yeah, or some yeah, s- Hufflepuff or Slytherin. I feel yeah. like like the Gryffindors are too goody two shoes for Slimehouse. Yes. Yes. I think I'm probably a Gryffindor, and I don't and I don't mean that as like. Anything. I just think, like...
3: Only a Slytherin would say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I <Like>, i <laughs> um,
1: I think I'm... I don't know. But just because I was into, like, leadership and things like that. But what do other people think their own houses are?
0: It's funny, actually. I do identify with the Slytherin house, I think. Yeah, as you mentioned, Nelson, it's all the bad baddies. But uh, <laughs> the hat talks about cunningness and having resourcefulness and ambition and a little sprinkle of pride. And I definitely think that the positive characteristics, hopefully, of Slytherin <laughs> uh, are, are the ones that I uh, I identify with. And maybe a little sprinkle of Ravenclaw, so Jasper's not too far off. Wow. Yeah, I, I self-identified
1: Slytherin. I, I like that. I, pre- I It takes some gall to say, yes, I'm a
0: Slytherin.
3: <laughs> I think a lot more people recently... And definitely some listeners who I've talked to you on the show. So I'm curious for y'all to speak out. But I definitely think self identifying Slytherins have slithered out of the, the cave and have become a lot more confident in saying, I'm definitely a Slytherin. I will say they have the best common room, though, out of all of the houses. It's a pretty sick common room. The Gryffindor common room is so lame. I'm
2: yeah. taking a quiz right now oh, to try and
3: find this. Oh, nice. So, Jared, while you're taking a quiz to figure out your Hogwarts house, how about we start with some slime scores for for the first two Harry Potter movies? And I think we, you know, give each one their own score.
1: I can go first, and I'm going to sort of side with something that Jared alluded to earlier, and I am going to give them the exact same score. And the reason I think that's what I want to do is because, yes, even though they're, like, we talked about Chamber of Secrets, there's a little more playfulness to it, and maybe the first one's a little more world-building— I think of these movies kind of like the lord of the rings trilogy where they were shot as back-to-back entities the rest of the series was a little more like one after the other but these were kind of shot in immediate succession and so to me they kind of feel like same crew same director same cast all that so it's it's i think the third one is where it starts to turn into something different but i think the first two you could almost look at as like within the same realm I'm teetering between a four and a five. I feel like that's kind of where I want to put them in in terms of like their slime house elements to them but they're not screaming slime house. Like obviously Harry Potter represents something else. I think I'm gonna settle on fours for both and these would be kind of high fours for me. They're not screaming 100% slime but there's definitely a slime culture in these movies because of the era they're in but I didn't watch it and, you know, leap on my feet and go, Slime House, you know, even though moments have shining slime in them.
3: I'll follow that up. I think there's a difference between the two. I think there's a very distinct difference between the two in terms of their tone and approach to the sense of humor, how the characters are depicted, how much room there is to kind of have fun. Most of my notes on both of these movies that deal with slime house or in reference to the chamber of secrets. So I'm going to give the Chamber of secrets a five. I I feel pretty good about that. It reminds me of, as Jared mentioned, some of the like spookier slime movies we watched, like a hocus pocus. um, Some of the antics of a movie like monster squad, which is a suburban set movie that feels much more slime house, but there's, there's that feeling of, of kids running the show Whereas in Sorcerer's Stone, which I'll probably give, I'm teetering between a two and a three. I'll settle on a three. It's just, it's a lot of world building. The adults are kind of introing the kids to a lot of stuff. And when the kids kind of do take, hold of the narrative. It's still, it's pretty dark. You know, it's an adventure movie. It doesn't feel like the the kind of zany antics, the looniness. There's no sense of humor in the back half of the Sorcerer's Stone, except for a few kind of jokes and dog drool on Ron Weasley's shoulder. Um, So yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to go a three on Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, a five on Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. But I think this is a super fruitful discussion and a really, really interesting show. So Bobby and Jared, what do you guys think?
2: First of all, the quiz told me I'm a Hufflepuff, but I'm not inclined to... It was a shallow quiz, and I had to take a survey afterwards. That <laughs> was longer than a quiz, so I'm not. I'm, dis- I'm, di- I'm disregarding their opinion. Anyway, um, to me, the Harry Potter slime factor tapers off with each movie. Actually, I'm going to go higher than you guys, because I feel like this was really something that was born out of the Slimehouse era and carries a lot of its trademarks. And even if the gags aren't as played up as they could be in another film, like a Tim Hill movie it feels too uniquely indebted to the sensibilities of funny kids movies of the late nineties for me to go too low. And I'm going to give both of these a six. And I was talking with Max earlier and his scores were six for Sorcerer's Stone, actually five for Chamber of Secrets. And I think both of us had the same rationale on that. I agree that Chamber of Secrets has more time dedicated to gags and less to world building, but there's still quite a bit of mythologizing in it and back fleshing out backstory and things like that. But at the end of the day, Sorcerer's Stone stands out as just this ultimate childhood fantasy dream, wish fulfillment. And, and, but Chamber of Secrets is also an important film for Slimehouse. House. And I think Prisoner of Azkaban even like starts off as like a somewhat slimy movie with Aunt Marge turning into a balloon. But yeah, like that would be something like a, in the magnitude of a three for me, Prisoner of Azkaban. But I do think of these first two movies as more genuinely belonging to the slime canon.
0: It's very interesting. I struggled a lot with uh, determining, you know, between the two where I landed. Uh, I'll start with Sorcerer's Stone or Philosopher's Stone. For me, similar to Jasper, it, it's a 3. Moment to moment there are elements that make you think, "Oh, that that slimy, you know, that that scene in particular feels goofy." But the overall setup and as Jasper's already mentioned the the back half of the film does not lend itself to a higher score at all, in my opinion. Um, the the structure of the film really emphasizes introducing a lot of different ideas, and I think that just takes you out of the sort of overall feeling of it of it being a slime film. I also think you guys speak a lot about. Sort of these elements of anti-authoritarianism, of course we've mentioned the child wish fulfillment, and for me, maybe it's because it is a fantasy. You know, we, we talk about some of these themes, it didn't feel quite as strong as some of the other films that you guys have spoken about in the past because of its fantasy elements. It feels sort of like it's just part of that world, whereas in Big Fat Liar, that's like, oh, he lives in a time and place and he gets to do this particular thing. It's, it's just that Harry is Harry Potter, he is who he is, and, and that's the story. Story. And so I think Sorcerer Stone, it, it doesn't lean into anything different and, and, and focus really on those slime elements. That being said, I think the Chamber of Secrets really pulls much more into those. Uh, so for me, actually, the Chamber of Secrets lands at a six. I think there's much more of an emphasis in the second film on presenting the film from the children's perspective, I think you have a lot of through lines throughout the movie that are quite slimy the introduction introduction of gilderoy lockhart is a big one for me moaning myrtle who we didn't speak about too much but is definitely central to the plot line of the film has quite a few scenes and is quite important to the overall structure of the film and is very slimy uh, as a character as well as sort of a of a plot point in general that this dead girl in a bathroom is the one who helps them discover where the chamber is. There are just many moments in that second film that really for me, shouted out Slimehouse uh, more than the first film did, which was a surprise when Rachel and I were watching this. We didn't expect it to be that way, but it was kind of fun to to look at this and rethink the way we had always seen these movies in the past. Uh, so I've got a newfound love for Chamber of Secrets. Thanks very much, Chris. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, unfortunately, Max couldn't be here. He's a little under the weather. Uh, but
1: the one thing that was really interesting is when we first discovered the Slimehouse list. This was always the one that kind of presented a question from people. They're like, "Oh, Chamber of Secrets? Really? Why is that on the list?" When you look at you know the, a bunch of movie posters, the Slimehouse ones are a little more like self-presenting of their Slimehouse, whereas I think Chamber of Secrets and Sorcerer's Stone are much more like of the era where this was
2: this was the main you know cultural way. This is one of the harder movies to rate both of these movies jointly because in some ways we talked about Shrek as being sort of a nail in the coffin for Slimehouse this same year for very different reasons because that was like the Slimehouse humor becoming very mainstream and this was like at the same time this movie comes out half a year later and is a giant step away from that original kind of Slimehouse idea and you almost kind of see this year 2001 like the Slimehouse humor starting to transition into like the animated films rather than live action yeah with mm-hmm. the dreamworks coming into prominence all the two you know
1: the may of 2002 was when spider-man came out and it was the beginning of a new type of four quadrant movie oh yeah that took away from slime house because an eight-year-old wanted to see spider-man not Slimehouse house movies and so i think this movie in a lot of ways, it was like a gateway drug to more adult fare because of what it was, and and also too for me personally. And I think I know Jared; you had the same experience. Uh, the Lord of the Rings coming out right after that. To me, it felt like that's where I want to be headed, not the, the more immature direction. Yeah.
3: Well, uh, and on that note, Bobby, thank you so much for joining us, longtime fan, yeah, first time guest. Thanks for for having me for some more films and and
2: Um, for our listeners, Bobby has been very influential on the show and given us great like ideas for improving the show. Like our slime study last season was his idea. So we really appreciate all this. (laughs) To which I was going to, yeah, the
0: the slime study could be very interesting with Harry Potter, uh, a slime study uh, could be a very interesting way to suss out family films versus slimehouse films you know it's it's got a lot of those distinguishing traits so it'd be interesting to just do that retrospective maybe at uh, at some point in the far future
1: yeah bobby we always appreciate hearing from you and rachel who i know enjoy listening to it um as well as huxley who particularly enjoyed our <laughs> matilda episode it turned out yes uh, <laughs> thanks for being a great listener and now a yeah, great we, contributor
3: We've got to just have a pets episode. Huxley, Bobby's dog, Jared, the pup, my cat, Max's cats. Nelson doesn't like animals, so he doesn't have to have a on the show. Yeah. I'm
1: uh, just joking. It's a, it's a running like, joke. It's a running well, joke. Well, I've got an idea. Why don't you guys bring all those animals and cover cats and dogs?
2: Ah,
3: season four, perhaps? <laughs> Sounds like a yeah. plan.
2: It'll be a Slim House. <laughs> So, alright thanks all right. again guys thanks and again Bobby
3: thanks again everyone and uh, as always Bobby do you want to do the honors and uh, as always everybody stay slimy Slimehouse a podcast created by Jared Anderson Jasper Birnbaum Max Morris and H. Nelson Tracy if you like this episode you can find more fun on slimehousepod.com our website is created by Brian Hume of Valencia Creative Company our theme music composed by Greta Russell Support this podcast at anchor.fm
1: slash slimehousepod or by following us on social media at slimehousepod on all platforms.